Welcome to Education Beat. I'm Ann Vasquez, EdSource's Executive Director. As California students begin to return to in-person classes this month, all public school students will be eligible to eat breakfast and lunch for free, regardless of family income. That's thanks to the federal government for easing restrictions during the pandemic. In California, free school meals for all will continue beyond this school year because the state became the first in the country to enact a universal meals program. Known as the Free School Meals for All Act of 2021, the new law seeks to end child hunger and food insecurity. We know that if students come to class hungry, it makes it harder to learn. And there are many reasons why a child might come to school hungry. Sometimes, a parent just doesn't have time to pack a lunch. Making free meals a standard at schools goes a long way in reducing the stigma students sometimes feel. It also avoids a lengthy application process that requires disclosing family income and other sensitive personal information. What impact will this new law have on schools? And what does it mean for students and their families? Here is this week's Education Beat. I have students who show up on Mondays for breakfast and tell me they, do not, they did not eat over the weekend because it wasn't their turn to eat. It's heartbreaking, it's unjust, and it's unsustainable. This is Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools. I'm Zadie Stavely. This week, free school lunch for all. This year, the California legislature heard dozens of testimonies like the one we just heard, urging them to offer free school meals to all students permanently. And now that's become reality. EdSource reporter Ali Tadion has been covering school meals at least since the pandemic started. Hi, Ali. Hi, Zadie. So how did California get here? What happened to make California decide to give free school lunch to everybody? Well, the movement towards a statewide universal school meal program really came out of the success of grab-and-go meals during the pandemic. And I think also the realization that many students who needed free meals and who qualified for them weren't getting them. What are grab-and-go meals? So during the pandemic, you know, when uh, districts weren't able to serve food in a traditional cafeteria setting, they offered what were called grab-and-go meals where they would have packaged meals, usually for like several days in a row. And then students, families would come and pick up like a bag of meals for the next couple of days. And those became known as grab-and-go meals. So I know you covered grab-and-go meals in the Bay Area. Can you tell us what, what you saw? Yeah, so early on in the pandemic, I went to a few schools at West Contra Costa Unified. I went to a school in Pinole and a school in Richmond. And they had, in Pinole, there, were, there was a drive-up situation where school workers, uh, a lot of them were nutrition workers, some teacher volunteers would pack up the lunches and uh, put them in the trunk of the car. And then at Richmond, it was more of a walk-up situation. So uh, parents would walk up and uh, grab bags of food uh, with the prepackaged meals and take them home. Were there a lot of people? Yes. I think uh, it was evident early on just how, how big the need was. So was that true statewide? Yes. Uh, districts throughout the state reported serving thousands of meals a day. Um, I spoke with Stephanie Bruce, Nutrition Services Director at Palm Springs Unified, about what was going on in her district. Let's hear what she had to say. 
the first week of the shutdown, we were doing about 10,000 meals a day. Uh, and I went from that to over 100,000. And the need that was out there was, just, it was overwhelming for us. And um, we had people come through and say, you know, I would normally not ever need to take advantage of a program like this. But unfortunately, due to the circumstances, I, I need to, I have four kids at home, I lost my job, and there just isn't enough money to take care of all their needs. And so by us providing that food, many of our families it just took that that stressor off of them. Stephanie spoke to the idea that a lot of people might have in their in their heads of Palm Springs and the Coachella Valley. Uh, but the families that live there that attend public schools, a lot of them are are working class and maybe work at the resorts that many think of when they think of Palm Springs. Yes, Palm Springs is definitely a resort town, but um, our district is made up of five cities out here in the Coachella Valley, and the children in our district are the children of the people who are the grounds workers, the hotel workers, you know, the housekeepers, the cooks, which typically is the lowest paid jobs that there are. And so many of our families do struggle to make, you know, enough money to take care of their families and and purchase food. And when you apply for the meal program, you apply based on eligibility guidelines that are across the country. So someone in rural Mississippi may have a much lower cost of living than someone here in the state of California, and they still have to go up against the same eligibility guidelines. So a family of four who are making minimum wage and both working 40 hours a week do not qualify for the meal program but that doesn't mean they don't need it. Stephanie told me about one conversation with a student in her district that really stood out to her. Monday is always the busiest day for our breakfast program, and I just wasn't sure why. So I um, started talking to students in line at one of our schools and asking, why today? Is it what's on the menu? Or are you just really excited to come to school and have breakfast? And I had a high school student tell me that it wasn't his turn to eat that weekend. There just isn't enough food at home. And he has younger siblings. And they take turns on who gets to have a little bigger portion or food at all. And that was just heartbreaking to realize that here we are in the, you know, 21st century, and we have starving kids in our backyard. How, how common is that at the district? It's way more common than people think. Um, you know, we have a lot of families who are actually doubling up in homes, and there just isn't enough money to purchase healthy food for the kids. And it's getting more and more expensive. Many of them don't have transportation to even get to a supermarket. And in many cases, a lot of the older siblings in the household are getting their younger siblings to school. So there might be some food to eat, but there may not be time to eat. Stephanie is actually really interesting because she works in a district that has qualified for free lunch for all for several years now, right? So that's through the community eligibility provision. Basically, for for everybody that doesn't know what that means, um, it means that if districts have a large number of students who qualify for programs like food stamps or Medi-Cal or um, are homeless, migrant or foster youth, they can offer free meals to everybody without requiring everyone to apply every year. In Palm Springs Unified, where Stephanie is from, 
almost 90% of their students are from low-income families, right? So they've had this program for a while. And in a way, they're kind of a test case for what is going to happen now. What did they learn from offering free school meals to everybody, Allie? Well, Stephanie spoke to the success of it. I mean, they, they had schools that saw a reduction in absenteeism. They had fewer trips to the nurse's office and just an overall more positive school climate. The, the first year, people were a little skeptical, didn't really understand that they could come into the cafeteria and really get any meal they want at no cost. Uh, but after the end of that first year, once students realized that it is free for everyone, it really reduced the stigma of the meal program because we would have students who actually qualified for the meal program but wouldn't come into the cafeteria because it was the you know, where the free kids or the poor kids eat. And it really kept kids from getting the meals that were available to them. So once we took that away, then the kids who did qualify and had friends that didn't qualify, they would all come to eat together. So we had students who had never participated in the program who now participate every day. Students who qualified for the program but refused to participate, now they participate as well because they can all sit together as a unit um, and enjoy a meal and have a nice social atmosphere while they're at lunch. So it's, it's no longer a stressful time of the day. It's a time where they can be social and just become a better community. It seems like there were a lot of kids who who already did qualify for free and reduced price lunch in their district. Um, how much did participation go up? Well, Stephanie spoke to participation going up quite a bit. Um, she said that she wasn't really expecting it to, but when it came down to it, when students were no longer no longer had to show that they were receiving free meals, a lot of students came forward and, and utilized that. And I think it goes to show that the students who needed it weren't receiving it. I honestly thought that my um, participation would not go up in my elementary schools, but it did. Um, my middle and high schools, I really thought we would probably get maybe another 10% of the student population. We ended up getting more than 50% of the population that did not qualify prior. It just, it went through the roof. You know, the, the kids are hungry and they'll come eat. So, Ali, how accurate are the, the percentages of free and reduced price lunch? We know almost 60 percent of students in California public schools qualify based on income. Is that an accurate count? I mean, it sounds like there were actually many more kids who needed free meals and at, at least in Palm Springs. Yeah, I spoke to several districts throughout the state who who believed that they're percentage of students who qualified for free and reduced price meals, meaning that they filled out the paperwork in order to receive it, was not accurate because a lot of families didn't feel comfortable filling out the forms for, for whatever reasons. Maybe they didn't want that information out there, information regarding how many people live at the home, students' immigration status, their income level. I spoke to districts who said that they believe that the count was actually much higher. Right. In the case of um, immigration, families are, are could be concerned because of uh, the whole issue of public charge. And so that means that um, there's a whole policy where if you take some kind of benefit, you could 
be seen as dependent on government services. Free school lunch is actually not in that policy, but a lot of people are very concerned that it could be and that it could be used against them when they apply for permanent residency. Um, So that that makes perfect sense to me why people would be concerned. Um, When kids come to school and they don't have free lunch or whether they didn't apply or they don't qualify, um, but they are hungry, how does that affect them in the classroom? Well, you know, I spoke to uh, State Senator Nancy Skinner about this, and her quote, to paraphrase, was, you know, you, you can't send a student to school without, without pencils and notebooks and, and school supplies. And the same thing goes, I mean, if a, if a child comes to school hungry, they're not going to learn as well as if they weren't hungry. So it's, it's crucial to a student's experience at school. That actually brings to mind something Stephanie Bruce of Palm Springs Unified said. I had a nurse at one of our high schools really take heart and listen to what I was saying and helped us institute this second chance breakfast on one of our high school campuses. And we went from serving about 100 breakfasts a day to over 800 a day. Um, And we have about 1,100 students on that campus. And that just proved to everybody that our kids are hungry. Shortly after we instituted that program, the nurse came back and let the board know that He no longer has students coming to his office in the morning because they've got stomach pains. He doesn't have anybody coming because of headaches. So he really has almost no visits in the morning before lunch uh, like he had before the program. You're listening to Education Beat getting to the heart of California schools. I'm Zadie Stavely, and I'm talking this week with Allie Taddeon, an EdSource reporter who's been covering school meals. Allie, when we talk about school lunch, I think we have to address how good are these meals, because I've heard from parents um, all over the state about how they're concerned that their kids' lunches are not actually very healthy. You know, you hear about uh, pizza, packaged foods, you know, lots of carbs, not enough fresh vegetables, not enough fresh fruits. You know, how healthy are these are these meals? That's certainly a concern that districts have to weigh when they're planning these things out. I mean, they they're challenged with feeding a large amount of students on a tight budget. Uh, and I think the intention of the Universal School Meals Program is to allow districts to maybe leverage their buying power to maybe purchase healthier foods um, and stuff like that. But uh, there's also a uh, incentive to partner with local California farmers so that uh, districts can, can get local fresh produce for their school meals. So is there any concern that there won't be enough funding from the federal government in the future or if there aren't as many students filling out applications for free school meals? Well, the state has committed to providing every student free school meals. That's a promise. Um, But they still will be asking families to fill out those free and reduced price lunch eligibility forms. And uh, that's both for uh, local control funding formula purposes and to leverage as much funding as possible from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I haven't heard too much concern that there won't be families filling out those forms. 
Uh, West Contra Costa Unified told me that at the beginning of the pandemic, they were a little concerned about it. And basically they just doubled down their outreach efforts and they asked families directly to fill out the forums and explain to them the importance of them and how it can lead to increased funding for the district um, and, and how that can actually benefit schools. They can see that money in the classroom. And so I think districts are, are going to be doing that to make sure that more families still fill out the forms while also ensuring them that their privacy is secured. So what's the biggest takeaway for you from this, Ali? I think, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me, and I think the, the pandemic has really shown this, is that you know, schools are more than just learning institutions. They're really the first stop for meeting children's needs. Child hunger is an issue nationwide, and schools are, are part of the effort to address that. Thank you so much for talking with me, Ali. Thanks, Zadie. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools, a production of EdSource. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Special thanks this week to Ali Tadion, Stephanie Bruce, and our director, Ann Vasquez. Also thanks to my daughter, Aurelia, for letting me use her room as a makeshift recording studio. Our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was brought to you by the Stewart Foundation and the Dirk and Charlene Cabsonell Foundation. I'm Zadie Stavely. Join me next week to hear about how teachers are preparing to welcome back their English learners with lots and lots of language. <laughs>